We are in the middle of a project. What we're trying to do with the syndicate and with this micro church network is a project that is, um, it may feel like something new and different, but it's ultimately the, the initial design for what the body of Christ was supposed to look like that we have lost over our history. The very first century of the church, it was, I want you to think about all the things that Jesus told his disciples about how to formulate the church, okay? All the instructions he gave them on governance, roles, all the way Jesus taught them how to lead nonprofit organizations, all the ways that Jesus prepared them for this work of eldership. Okay? It probably didn't take you long because Jesus spoke very, very little about the form and the shape of what the ecclesia would look like because he had a very particular thing he wanted us to do in the very first century. What he said was, go, make disciples, teach them everything I commanded you, baptize them in the name of Jesus, and I'll be with you. He just basically kicked him out the door and said, figure it out as you go. And that was meant to be the design and ethos of the church from the very beginning. That first couple of centuries were, it was a real punk rock ethos, okay? They were breaking the rules. They're going into towns and preaching in synagogues, getting kicked out, and then going, we got to figure out how to meet together and do this Jesus thing since we're not allowed to be Jews anymore. And so they would gather in homes, and they had... They had to replace what the synagogue had been, which was the village life of Jews in the diaspora outside of Jerusalem. And then they, had, they built extended spiritual families to be the ecclesia. That was the first expression of the church. And it looked that way for the most part for in, in different ways for 250, 300 years. Until 325 when uh, I think... By Satan's design and God's allowance, Constantine pretended to be converted to Christianity and used this massive movement of Jesus followers throughout the Roman Empire to consolidate power around himself. And then what happened was the church died a precipitous death from that point forward because they took the formula of the empire. They took the administration of the empire and they overlaid that on the church and said, this is how we do church now. They took the, the powerful ways that they had um, collected coercive power into a small group of people and then said, we are going to rule from afar. We're going to create what, uh, what the Catholic Church would call the throne of Peter where he saw himself as the king over the church in the world. And it would start in 325, and power and money would, power and money would corrupt, and then they would cooperate with the empire as the empire spread throughout the Western world. They, of course, as soon as there's this massive bureaucracy and lots of money, they started arguing about theology because that's the only time you argue about theology is when there's lots of power and lots of money and lots of prestige that you can fight over. And so they fought over theology for a thousand years. The church consolidates power under Rome. Even the kings of the whole Western Hemisphere submit themselves to the throne of Peter under the Vatican. 
And then in 1512, we see this uh, cataclysmic event where one guy stands up and says, hey, I read Galatians and we got it wrong. I, I read Galatians and I realized that the, the church itself doesn't have the power to save. It's the work of Christ on the cross has the power to save and it is only by faith that we are saved in Christ. And the Protestant Reformation, they, they saw that there was this openness that we were meant to be this, they, they read in, in Romans and in Hebrews, this work of the church was meant to be a royal priesthood. All of us were meant to be a part of the work. Um, and they, they thought, okay, the Protestant Reformation, they're going to transform the landscape. But what they did was they took the mass and they took the, the structures of Catholicism and kept them because they liked the power and they liked the control. And they said, listen, everybody's a priest, but sit down and shut up and let the professionals do the work. And they kept doing it for another 400, 500 years. Um, I, I read this this week. It says, priesthood of all believers. Medieval theologians believe that salvation came from God through the church. In these simple terms, this sounds similar to the way that most Christians understand it. There are significant differences between medieval and Protestant understandings of how God works through the church. The medieval church taught that God works exclusively through a select class of priests as they administered the seven sacraments of the church. Baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, penance, extreme unction, look that one up, uh, marriage, and holy orders. Protestants, on the other hand, believe that all people in the church are priests, or in the language of the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, the priesthood of all believers. It was a great idea but they had no idea how to do it because they didn't really believe that the people should be empowered. Probably because they knew people. They looked around at their friends and they're like, I don't know about this whole priesthood of all believers thing. And then the, the 19th century rolled around and the first movement of evangelicalism opened up. And everyone they believed was a priest and a missionary if you were outside of your hometown. So as soon as you got on the road, you were allowed to be a priest and you were allowed to be a missionary and you were sent out into the world. But as soon as you got back home, it was sit down, shut up, and let the professionals do the work. There, there was this massive missionary movement where they'd send out men and even women to go preach the gospel to the far ends of the earth. But as soon as they got home, they told the women, sit down, be quiet, let the professionals do the work. And then liberal Protestantism came along and said that there's a mission, but the mission is just social justice. All we're supposed to do is just care for the poor and the weak and forget proclamation. And the gospel was lost for a generation. And then fundamentalism came around and said, no one's a priest. Stay away from the world. Just cloister in and protect yourselves from this dark, deep world. And then Pentecostalism came along and said, mission is powerful acts of the spirit in the world, not proclamation and not helping service to the world. And then we have this second movement of evangelicals in the middle of the 20th century that taught that mission itself was teaching the Bible to the world. And that brings us to the movement that you have all entered into, which we call the missional movement. It's been going on for about 40 years. And uh, there was a group of missionaries who came back from the third world in the middle of the 20th century and looked at Europe and looked at parts of America and said, you aren't who you think you are. You are, you are not 
followers of Jesus. You have forsaken the way. You have not become disciples of the way, and therefore we need to re-evangelize the West. And what they realized was that everywhere we go is the mission of God coming to life, and that the church is meant to be on mission, whether at home or away, and that we all are sent. And what the missional movement did is, I think, restored the true message of the gospel. The gospel had been neutered from this pure, beautiful, all-encompassing reality to a proclamation of faith. The gospel is not, if I say the prayer, I will be saved. The gospel is not that Jesus died on the cross so that our faith could justify us. The gospel is this. It's the same gospel Jesus preached. It's the same gospel his disciples preached. It's the same gospel the church preached for the first 300 years, and it's this. The king is coming. The king has arrived. Act accordingly. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world, and we as his people are meant to be the ones to embrace it, to be, the way Jesus put it was, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. All that means is the kingdom of God is showing up right now, and you need to transform your life to participate in what he's doing. And that's the good news is that Jesus came so that we could be a part of what he was doing, so we could be a part of his family, so that we could be justified and glorified and uh, sanctified by his work. And so why are we talking about that when we're talking about microchurches? We have to rethink what church is. Church is not an organization. Church is not a building. Church is not an activity. Church is you being what you're meant to be in a world that's desperate for the sort of hope that they're looking for. So why do we do microchurch? Here's it. It's simple. We want to take everything that church has become, all of the, um, the hundreds of pages of discipline and how we meet it out to one another. We want to take away all of the demands of organization. We want to take away all of the demands of um, the nine marks or the seven marks or the 18 marks of a true Christian. And we want to simplify it down to something that everybody can grab hold of and start right away. Now, it's infinitely complex, and it's going to take the rest of your life to master the way of Jesus. But we want it to be something that you can grab hold of and recreate simply so that you are truly a priesthood of all believers. So that you, every single person in this room, grabs hold of the identity we, we talked about in Redemption Hill this spring, that you are a priest who is meant to mediate between God and this world and between this world and God. And that if you don't do your work, the world around you is missing out on the thing he has called you to. So we want it to be really, really simple, really reproducible so that anybody can do it or nearly anybody can do it. We want it to be so that everybody is needed. The problem with our churches is that they're really efficient. You can have 20% of the people put on a church service and all the kids programming and 80% of the people do nothing. And you know what that produces? It produces 20% of people who are burned out and 80% of people who are not formed in the way of Jesus. And we want to be less efficient. We want everybody to have a role and everybody to have a part. And when you're a microchurch, it forces everybody to jump in because we're family, right? You can't sit on the sidelines. Um, we also believe that what we're talking about with micro and house churches is, is the ancient way. It's what, it's what the church was from the very beginning. It's what the church looks like everywhere there's movement throughout the world is people grabbing hold of their missionary identity and seeing the church emerge from their lives. 
And so we want to invite you into this new way of being the church. This probably isn't something that's radically different for you, but hopefully it's shifting some things as we go. So today we're going to be diving into how do we actually do it? Like what are the nuts and bolts of living as community? Um, I want to start with this is why, why are we doing this? Why do we partner together for this as the syndicate? The syndicate is a training network that's working together to, to resource and equip and to share best practices among practitioners of missionaries in our city. And that's what it is. We've got, I think, six or seven networks that are connected. And together we share ideas. We train together. We are putting on our family reunion tomorrow to get a sense of what we're doing. And our big vision that God gave Dusty and I as we were praying two years ago was that we have 800 neighborhoods of about 1,000 people across the valley. And what we're praying for is that God would place a missionary couple, family, unit among every one of those 800 neighborhoods in the valley. And that gospel presence would saturate those places so that everybody has access to somebody who truly follows Christ and loves them. And so we see you as a fulfillment of that by grabbing hold of your missionary identity and going out and doing what God has called you to. We have what we call our radical ecclesial minimums, and we, we want to keep it as simple as humanly possible. What is microchurch? It has these three components. Now, some of you are coming from very churchy backgrounds, and you've probably been a part of community groups or life groups or Bible studies or some sort of a small group thing. And what we're talking about is different because of this radical ecclesial minimum. If you have these three things, you are church. If you don't have these three things, you are not church. Okay? When you gather, these are the three irreducible minimums of what it means to be a church. Now, let me say this. If you see the top left corner, there's a website. Every one of these slides are there, and every one of the handouts are on that that you can download or look at. So if you ever need to go back to something, redemptionboise.org slash summit, you can get everything you need right there. Um, so it starts with our deep connection with the Father. We call it worship, but we, we don't mean worship in the sense of uh, the music. What we're talking about is um, worship is listening to the Father because he is worthy of our attention and our allegiance and our obedience. So we listen to the Father. That's the number one way that we worship is we listen to God together. Second is we proclaim to ourselves and to the world that Jesus is king. We bow at his throne and allow him to shape every part of our life. Everything we do is Christ-shaped. We're looking at him and saying, how can we look and be and lead and do like him? And the third is this, obey, to obey is to love. And if you want to worship, the thing that Jesus wants is not more singing and not more um, heartfelt prayers. He wants you to do what he asks you to do. It's, it's pretty simple. He just wants you to obey and become what God has called you to. So that's worship. That's one piece. The second piece is mission. And a lot of a lot of small group ministries and churches really struggle with this one, and it just doesn't show up because it's not intentional. That's why we focus on mission, is because we think if we focus on that, the other two are going to come along with it. But if we don't focus on that, that one will never come. So we focus on mission. Um, we're organized for mission. So we, we don't organize ourselves in a way that's all about internal care for our organization. We organize ourselves in a way that's asking we're the only organization on the earth that exists for the people outside of it. We only exist because we are here to serve the people who are yet to become a part of it. We are not an organization as the body of Christ to be a country club that 
serves its members, that pays their dues. Everything we do, we want to orient outward. And so we're organized for mission. We disciple with loving accountability. We see that mission is discipleship. And that when we preach the gospel to one another and when we step into obedience through accountability and when we learn the way of Jesus in community, that is the gospel taking root in our lives. And it's the way that people come to faith. People don't come to faith through, the, through uh, a special sermon and they pray along with you. They come to faith by committing to a discipleship relationship within the church. That's the way you come to faith is by you're, you're not a follower of Jesus until you've committed to walking in a lifetime of discipleship and learning the way of Jesus. Some people don't realize that. Some people think that it's just a, a magic incantation that we pray that one time at that Billy, Gray, Billy Graham thing. And I think that God uses those as seeds to start those journeys, but followers of Jesus follow Jesus, and we, we believe that that's a part of the gospel. Um, and we believe that mission helps us to become what Jesus has called us to. It matures us in the way. You actually, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to make disciples because the one thing we see Jesus do with almost all of his time is make disciples. So if you aren't making disciples, you can't follow Jesus. It's a, it's a crazy thought, but that's the truth is that unless you participate in teaching the way to others, you are not learning the way of Jesus and you're not following the way of Jesus. It requires you to grow in such a way that you have something to offer to those who come after you. And the third is community. This is the one that is somewhat easier for most people because they like it the most. But within the community, within uh, the group God has called us to, we're going to share the gospel, we're going to plant disciples, and we're going to multiply. That's, those are the three irreducible minimums of the church. I wanted to dive into John chapter 19, John chapter 20, verse 19. It says this, on the evening, that first day of the week, this is the, the night that Jesus was resurrected. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Now, that, is, that phrase is so cliche and it means that you're greeting people at a Catholic church. That's what that phrase means in our heads. That's not what that phrase is. He's saying, in Aramaic, shalom is with you. Jesus is preaching the gospel in this verse. He's saying, the kingdom of God has broken in, and I bring it with me. Shalom is with you. That's what shalom means. Peace means the kingdom of God. All things set right. Jesus is proclaiming to them, the kingdom is here with my arrival in this resurrected body. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side as evidence of the kingdom. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Shalom be with you. The kingdom has come. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Like, this is, this is the new creation coming to life. This is hearkening back to Genesis 1, and Jesus is saying, are you ready? New creation is here. <sighs> He's going to fill up these dry bones and these dusty old bodies and give it new life. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this is 
this is where the Catholic Church believes that the organization has the right to decide who's in and who's out. But what Jesus is saying is there's 120 people. There's the, the crowd that had been discipled by Jesus. And he's telling all of them, you have the capacity to give away the forgiveness of God everywhere you go. And if you give it away, people will receive forgiveness. And if you don't give away God's forgiveness, they will not receive forgiveness. We become literally the only output of God's forgiveness spoken over this world. Jesus, like this is, this was a terrible idea. Jesus must not have known what he was doing. But he put in our hands the power of the kingdom of God to come to life, which is terrifying and beautiful. But his plan is us being what we're meant to be. And so this is what we're doing with the syndicate. We're a part of a, a nationwide network of movements called the underground. And it's this work of discovering God's way from the beginning. What we believe is that God calls missionaries to live these sent lives and that they see a microchurch emerge from making disciples and teaching the way of Jesus. And then that microchurch multiplies as, as a part of a collective like Redemption Hill or Sojourn. And then together, we call this the syndicate. We have these uh, micro churches that are in cooperation in a movement together, doing different things in different places for the same mission. And these collectives together worked for communications, coaching, training, finances, calling and vision, coaching. This is what we're doing is trying to bring these things to life. Um, so let's start with prayer. Does that sound good? That was just preamble. It's only 1035. We're doing good. Um, let's, let's pray together. Uh, this was, we've been praying for the, for this and for our family gathering tomorrow. And this was our prayer prompt from yesterday. And I, that Elizabeth Chin gave us. And I, I it's been, my, it's been my prayer as we've been trying to see God bring missionaries who will work alongside of us. That's our prayer. Colossians 4, 4 through 6. Continue steadily in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Lord God, may we pray like Paul that God would open doors to the gospel in every part of our city, that he would send out, equip, and call laborers who would embody the way and proclaim the way and help people experience the power of the way by their hands and by their actions. Lord God, may, may we be people who clearly proclaim the good news that your kingdom is breaking in, that we can participate in it through Jesus' death and resurrection, and that we have a place in your work in this world to bring the flourishing of your kingdom in part now and in whole in the next life. Lord God, have your way among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So I, I, I'm going to invite Dusty up here in just a minute. But before we do that, I just wanted to, I wanted to help you out by helping you chill out a little bit. Okay? Who's, who's feeling like a little, like half excited, half nervous about microchurch and what it looks like in this next season as you launch and prepare? And Yeah. That's real. 
I feel it for you. My wife is constantly telling me about her excitement about it. And I'm, I'm feeling those senses of fear that come from new things. Now, what I want to do is tell you this. You're going to learn a lot today. I've got stacks of things to hand out to you. Um, you've got to throw out your idealism about the church and about microchurch. Throw out your idealism. Throw out your need for this thing to be buttoned up, for it to be clear, for it to be well-planned. Okay? This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. It comes in waves and spurts, and it comes in time, and it is something that we can't control. And so we're just looking around saying, what's God up to, and joining him in it. And so stop trying to control what God is doing. Pay attention and join in with it, okay? So kill your idealism. Uh, our goal is to grow and to get better and not be an ideal microchurch, okay? I want you to think about that ideal microchurch you've been building in your head. I want you to kill it. Just murder it right now. Whatever that idealism is about what your life's going to look like, just kill it, okay? Second is we have a culture of experimentation because it's the field around us, the mission field is constantly changing, and our work is to go where God's called us. And so your work is to pay attention and to change. So experiment, try things, things that work great, things that don't. If you don't learn things from the failures, then you wasted the failure. And, you know, you got to go through the lesson again. So learn from your failures. Uh, we have a culture of humility and of personal growth. And so when things are not going well, don't blame the people in your microchurch. Look at you. Look at who you are. And ask, how do I need to grow to lead and to be the missionary God's called me to? Rather than externalizing and demanding that everybody else get in line with the thing that you're, you think that they should do. Um, we have a culture, trying to build a culture of patience. Um, now, your pastors probably aren't teaching you this, but if you do the math, Jesus was probably born between 4 to 7 AD, and he died in either 29 or 33 BC, sorry, he, he was born between 4 and 7 BC, and he died in either 29 or 33 AD. There's historic reasons for both those numbers, but it means that when Jesus started making disciples in his 30th year, it took him somewhere between four and seven years to teach his disciples the way. He was the king of all creation, the Lord of lords, and he was God himself, fully empowered by the Spirit. And it took him four to seven years to teach 12 teenagers the way of Jesus. And you want it to happen in a nine-month curricular cycle, okay? And you're not that good at it. And I'm not that good at it. And so we, we want to be patient because God himself wants to see the kingdom of God emerge. Not He doesn't want flash-in-the-pan movement. He wants real movement, this born-out transformation. Um, we want to have a high value of mission because when we, when we live sent, we live as disciples of Jesus. When we don't live as missionaries, we live as babies who are suckling at the teat of the culture and of the content that we want to provide for them. So mission is the thing that activates us into the way of Jesus, and it has to be a part of everything we do. Um, do not obsess about the planning. Obsess about the execution. Write that one down. 
Do not obsess about the planning and getting it right up front. Obsess about executing what you plan well and learning through it. Because it's the execution, it's the doing where you're going to learn, not the planning. Get out there. Ready, fire, aim, fire, re-aim, fire, re-aim, fire. Okay? That's the way, that's the way that it works. <laughs> Ernie's over there going, no, you cited in just right. Um, okay. And the last thing is this. What we're doing is not cool, okay? Like some, some of you probably have this vision of like this inter- interesting way that you're going to be Jesus followers because you're part of a microchurch. It's not cool. This is just the ancient way. This is the way of Jesus. And we're just trying to recapture what he was up to from the beginning. So I want to invite my buddy Dusty up. He's the leader at the Sojourn Network, and he's going to dive into what, it, what the missionary pathway is. All right. Great, great to be with everyone <clears throat> here today. Uh, like Robert said, my name is Dusty. I help lead Sojourn. Um, and this has been something, I'll just tell you, like, like as Robert says, you know, throw away and kill off some of those things. Um, discipleship is, is messy. Uh, it takes longer than you think. And, and it's different than we've kind of been raised at thinking. You know, we've all been raised uh, kind of within our, our American church culture. In American church culture, um, basically you need to learn one thing is how to invite someone to church, right? And then, and then you kind of give it to the professionals and then they take it and, and run with it and, and okay, I did my job. Um, this idea of, of, of following in the way of Jesus looks a little bit different. And so uh, some of you are very familiar with it. Some of this will be kind of a refresher. Some of this will uh, probably maybe grain against some of your your uh, thoughts about the church and, and what you've grown up with and stuff. Um, but we're just going to go over a couple things that you'll see, you'll see on the board there. Um, and and this, is, this is something that everyone is intended to engage in, right? And so, so you really got to have, have a thought of church differently um, as, as what we're uh, called to accomplish and do and stuff. And so this is, this is a pathway that, that we didn't come up with it, but um, if, you, if you were just to go around the world and find um, other Christians in other places, these five things um, throughout history have been true and will be true over and over again for those who are making disciples in the way of Jesus, right? It'll just, it'll just be true Every single time. Um, really important. I'm glad uh, Robert started off with, with thinking of the history and, and getting kind of where we're at today because these things are really, really important to think through. And so, so we're just going to walk through this pathway. Um, and, and I want to start off with saying, though, um, what, we're, what we're called and asked in to do, um, you know, some of the primary questions, at least, that I was asked that made me rethink how I looked at church and stuff like that is, is really asking a couple questions. Um, what is it that God actually wants? And what would it look like if God got what he wanted? Right? Like those, those are the two questions that we have to ask. It's not like, well, what do I want? And how do I want it to look? Like if, if we're under the lordship of Jesus, and I think that's a central thought in here, is we actually have to be under the lordship of Jesus. Um, it's, it's, we just have to ask those questions. What, what does he actually want? What did Jesus intend? What did he want? And then what would it look like if I'm responding as his disciple, to follow in line with that. And, and I think these things will, will speak truth to that because uh, they're fleshed out from his word. And we're not going to do a huge deep dive into those things, but, um, but we're going to look at, at what those things look like. Okay, the, the first thing I, I also want to do, we're, and we're, we're going to work around the circle in just a second. I know you really want to get, oh, there's number, oh, number one and number two. And number, okay, um, th- this idea of... of fo- 
Oh, okay. Well, well I, that's all right. That's right. You, uh, it, it's okay to, to be hearing me and then looking up there because, uh, you know, I, I know you've got to scribble notes and stuff, and I might go through it quicker than, than you want. Um, uh, one, one thing that you got to realize as we follow the way of Jesus is um, stuff emerges out of this, right? There, there's actually not a verse in the Bible that says, go plant churches. There's actually not a verse that directs us to do that. However, there's a bunch of times of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament that says, go make disciples. And it's as we go and do the things that Jesus tells us to, then it emerges out of that context, right? So churches always emerge. Like, so you can, you can kind of plant a church and you may or may not get disciples. Okay, there's lots of churches, I would say, in our country. Um, some of them might not have a disciple in the building, Okay. But if you make disciples, you're always, always, always going to get the church uh, in, in the true sense. And so we're going to work through, through these things. And like I said, these five things, um, they just ring true for, like, you could go to India. And I've, I've been to India multiple times. And you can see these things emerging. Um, all the places where movement is really pushing it, they have these five things. First one on there. Um, and, and maybe the most important, because really if you did this one, probably the rest will happen. Is, is every movement uh, starts with extraordinary prayer and fasting. Everyone, you can't find a move of God that doesn't involve the people of God seeking God in deep prayer. Like, like it's, it's literally an impossibility. I, I mean, we could almost just like stop there and be like, okay, let's have lunch, let's call it a day, if we actually did this one. Right? Um, but, you know, as Americans, we, we like our nuts and bolts and we like our processes and stuff. Um, but really, this one is, is huge. If, if you are not willing to regularly commit to this idea of prayer and fasting and this spiritual discipline of seeking God and asking Him for, for what He wants, um, then, then you are going to, you're just ne- not going to be able to, to engage in, in what God has asked you to do. I mean, it's just as simple. We look at the life of Jesus, and he was constantly drawn away to prayer. He was constantly doing these things. Um, you know, I, I love some of the stories of Jesus where, you know, some of the first things, like they, they go into town, and he's doing all these miracles, and, uh, and the disciples get all excited, and they wake up the next morning, you know, and there's people waiting, right? And they're like, oh, we got this, we got this thing happening. It's, it's finally happening. Okay, someone go get Jesus. The, you know, the people are here for him to heal. And they, like, go to find Jesus, and they're like, where's Where's Jesus? Like, he's gone. He's missing in action. Like, we just had this big thing we just started, and, you know, we're about to take over the world, and Jesus is gone. And, and so they, you know, eventually found him and stuff and got him, in, and he's praying, right? He went up to the mountainside to pray. And, and this needs to be our posture as we, as we look at what it looks like. And so a few things that, that we want to uh, pray about, and you can see it on there, is, is mission and activity is team-focused, right? Like, Jesus always sent people out in twos. There's always this kind of idea of, like, hey, we're going to do stuff as, as a team. And so be praying about those things. Like, God, who can, who can I be connected with to do his work? Because um, there's this beautiful thing that we're not just, like, sent out um, all by ourselves, is, is we, we have this idea of teams and stuff. So we need to be praying and leaning into, who is God going to put around me for this work? And, and who am I going to be committed to? And it, it might take years and years and years. Here's the, here's the thing. It's, it's not fast. 
Um, I mean, once in a while it'll be fast. You can see it overseas, but but most of the times it's, it's slow, like Robert was saying. You know, it took a handful of years just to get those. So, like for Jesus to make it happen, it took like four to seven years, and it took a death and resurrection. So, if you're not prepared for those three things, you're gonna you're gonna have challenges, right? So, like, just be prepared. Like this is this is slow and it's messy and it's dealing with people, but this is what Jesus asked us to do, and so we got to have this idea of like uh, finding a, a team. Okay, listening. Okay. Jesus, where are you at work? Like, what are you doing? So, like, right now, like, at this very instant, this is kind of theology of the Holy Spirit. Right now, we're sitting in this room. Um, God's Spirit is everywhere, right? God's Spirit's out there, and according to John, he's convincing the world of three, of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, so God's Spirit is doing this great work out there, and, and among people and stuff, and we come alongside, and we're partnering with God's great work. And so we need to see, God, where are you moving around me? Where in my neighborhood? Where in my workplace? Where in the place where I, I, I play and hobby? God, where, who, are, who are you doing? Who are you stirring things in? And, and we are participating in that. So we need to be listening, though. We need to be asking God, God, where, where, where are you doing stuff? Where do you want me to be part of that? Okay, then there's that missional prayer. Jesus, how can I join you? Right, Jesus, what, what, what is it that you're doing? How can I join and participate with the great work that you're doing in CERN among people? Um, we, a lot of times, I think, put too much pressure on ourselves. There, there's this balance in this tension of, of urgency and, like, no, this is, this is God's work that we're participating in. It, it's, it's, not, it's not just our work. It's God's work. We're joining him. We have a missionary God. And I think this is why we really need to start with this. This is why we start in this spot, is because we need to submit ourselves to the missionary God who loves people far more than we do. And we need hearts that are aligned with that, hearts that break for the people that we live around, hearts that break for our neighbors. Uh, I don't know if you looked around the world, um, looked around our country, we're kind of a mess, right? We're kind of a hot mess at this point. And, and we've been, and all through history has been, right? Like that's just the story of humans who don't like to listen and follow God, right? Surprise, we, we get ourselves in trouble. And, and I think we're just seeing hopelessness and, and we're grasping at straws of like, oh, maybe the, the government will fix us. Maybe um, this thing will fix us, this philosophy, if we just engage it. Maybe science will fix us. And, and if we have enough um, medicine, that'll fix us. And, you know, all these things. And, and God is stirring in the midst because I think there's this inner longing that God has placed inside of us that says, man, there's something more to it. And, and we're looking. We're just, we, people just look in the wrong spot. And we get to come alongside and join with God's work as he's, he's, he's nodding and nudging people by his spirit to say, here's, here's what we can do. Okay, number two. So, so extraordinary prayer and fasting, we're, we're looking for who can I work with? How can I join with the team? How can I ask good questions to God of what he's doing and be part of that? Number two, uh, live as missionaries, right? So, so once we establish, okay, here's, here's what God has put my focus on, okay? And, and, and there's other trainings and stuff of how to kind of come up with like who I'm focusing on and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes people will do relational maps, but, but likely it'll be in a neighborhood or a network, Okay, that's, that's usually how, how it works, right? Where you'll kind of land of like, oh, I think God wants me to focus on this neighborhood or possibly a network. Man, I ride bikes a lot, um, play basketball, do whatever. I'm going to focus on that network or, or, or your neighborhood. Okay, those, those are kind of two things. And then, then you want to live as missionaries around them, right? We're, we're not living as people who, 
who might just kind of drop them an invitation to church sometimes. Uh, we want to live like a missionary. So, so imagine if you were to go to Africa and visit a tribe, okay? The first thing you're probably not going to do is you're not going to get a big band together and put on a church service, right? That seems silly, right? Because they would be like, what are you doing? Okay, crazy, crazy people, right? And so, so but what we would do is it was we would get to know people. We would probably learn their language. We would know how to talk to them. And this is what living as a missionary is. Is we, is we learn these things, okay? And we'll go over something, um, hopefully, uh, called bless. Um, that's begin in prayer, listen to people, eat with them, um, serve them, and then share your story with them of how God has transformed your life. Okay, those, I don't think we're going to, are we going to go over those today? We're not going to go over this today. But this is, this is a plug because if, if you want um, to deep dive into these things, um, I think the last week of September, Last week of September, we're going to do a primer on these things of how to really engage deeper. Uh, so this is kind of just a little t- taste uh, for you all uh, for that. Okay, so, so live as a missionary. Okay, it's, it's basically um, reorganizing your life around um, living for the sake of others. Right? Saying, God has called me into mission on behalf of, of the people I'm around. Okay, on behalf of your neighborhood or network. Right? And so I'm going to um, begin by prayer. I'm going to listen to people. Okay, listen to people's stories. Um, what, what are their hopes? What are their fears? Where are they putting their trust in? Okay, where, where, where are the gaps in their life? Okay, and you're going to eat with them. You're going to spend time with them, hobby with them, do stuff like that. Okay, you're going to serve them. Okay, find ways to, to engage in their life. And then finally, uh, if you do those first four, where hopefully you'll eventually get to share the gospel with them. Share, here's what Jesus has done in my life. Okay, uh, number three. Number three is, is plant the gospel. Um, and, and this is really like, like at some point, we, we have to have opportunities to engage them with the good news of Jesus. Okay, and, and there's, I, I would say there's kind of a couple ways to, to plant the gospel. Uh, one is through, you know, really the sharing, um, articulating it. Um, and I, I think one of the best ways to do it is in conversation. Um, and, and just really engage people through conversation, but, but with some intentionality. And that takes some skill and some training. We're, we're not very good at, at listening. We're, we're really good at proclaiming from a microphone. Uh, we're not great at sitting in a coffee shop engaging people that way. That, I think that's the skill that, that Christians need to learn uh, in the next five years. Uh, because people aren't just going to rush through doors and listen to you. But we have to love people and engage them. And so we have to be great conversationists. If you look at Jesus, he was a master at asking questions. Learn to ask questions. Like a lot of Jesus' interaction was just straight up asking questions. And so we need to learn that. Uh, we also uh, use stuff called Discovery Bible Studies. And Discovery Bible Studies are, are basically just a way to engage in God's word um, through asking questions. Right? And so, so we're, we're not going to deep dive into that as well uh, again today. But that's just something that... That I, I know for us as a church, we, we use Discovery Bible Study. It's just a simple way to engage in Scripture that you could do with anyone, right? Because a lot of this idea is everyone can do this. Everyone, right? Like Jesus literally took teenagers, okay? Just took young, young men and, and changed the world uh, through being in their lives, asking questions, um, and so this is, this is a way that we can do that. And so we've got to plant, plant the gospel. You'll see on there it says Discovery Bible Studies and then Gospel Fluency. Um, 
Gospel fluency is, is kind of this idea that, that we need to learn to be fluent in the gospel. I was just in Mexico uh, just two weeks ago. Um, I, I can say like two words in Spanish. Okay, I can say hola and baño. I don't even know if I said that right. Okay, it means toilet. And I have a lot of reasons for knowing that word, uh, which I'm not going to get into today. Okay, and so, um, so I'm not fluent. Like I can't go down there and have this fluent conversation. Most of us are not fluent in the gospel right? It's almost like a secondary language. We don't know how to talk about it. And we need to learn to be more fluent. Um, first part of November, I think November 1st, uh, we're bringing a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt uh, to town, and he's going to talk about gospel fluency, and he talks about it amazingly. Um, it's actually wrote the book Gospel Fluency, uh, which is where this resource came from. And so we're excited that he's going to come. You should, you should come to that. Uh, that'll be November 1st. Um, would be the evening. And so, anyway, so, so that's this idea that we plant the gospel, right? So, so we pray, we seek God, we join in his work, we start living like missionaries among those around us, we start planting and sowing the seeds of the gospel through his word and through, uh, through our conversations. And number four, the church emerges out of that. So as, as we start engaging people and having conversations and invite people to our homes and our lives, right? Churches emerge, like the ecclesia just means this, this gathering of people uh, around, around these certain things, right? And so, so a church emerges out of that. And so you can start then adding these different rhythms. Remember those three things, right? We need worship, we need community, we need mission, okay? And so, so you start in some spot, and eventually you can build those things into this community that develops that looks like a, an extended family of spiritual aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters. That's the language of the New Testament, is, is this family language, okay? And a church emerges out of that. So we, we develop rhythms for that, okay? And then the last thing is, is we want to multiply that, right? It's, it's our hope to see, um, you know, about, about um, a thousand people that are equipped to engage that will just flood the city of Boise. Um, Sojourn, we use the language, every man, woman, child, right? We, we want to see every single person be able to, to know someone, have this gospel witness in, 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 a, in a way that makes sense and communicated articulately and that's lived out uh, so that we can see this. And it's going to take multiplication. Okay, there's, I don't know, 50, 60 of us in here. Uh, so we got about 750 more to go um, of, of seeing people living this way out so the, the Boise will be transformed uh, by the goodness of, of Jesus and the gospel. And so those are the kind of the five things, those, those different, different ways in which we want to see this, this missionary pathway. So this is what we're inviting you into um, of like, it's, it's really a lifestyle. It's the lifestyle of Jesus that he modeled, and it's been modeled by Christians throughout centuries and stuff, and it's been kind of hijacked a little bit. But this is, this is what we're inviting you into. And, and I think it's, it's simple, it's reproducible, as Robert said, and, and I think it's powerful. This is what a microchurch is. You might want to write this down. This is, this is a good one, right? An extended spiritual family led by ordinary people who live in everyday gospel community and own the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships. So extended spiritual family. We see our microchurch as the people who are our covenant people that God has knit our lives together so we're responsible to one another to live connected. It's not an optional community. It's not what we do when we want to. It's a covenant community. We have decided together that this is my people. Ordinary people, led by ordinary people. Now, um, we, we do have a, a little bit of qualification around who leads microchurches within 
our, so we have different organizations and Sojourn has its own elders and oversees who leads micro churches and is responsible for those. But it's not going to be professional clergy. It's not going to be seminary trained and Bible trained. It's going to be people who make disciples and follow the way of Jesus who can lead micro churches. That's one of the reasons we do it because a very small percentage of people can lead a community of hundreds or thousands. A lot of people can lead a community of 10 to 30. We think that it democratizes the opportunity of leadership and it's the way God shapes us. So led by ordinary people to live in everyday gospel community. Now that sounds like nice like religious language that, no, wouldn't that be nice? Everyday gospel community. Everyday gospel community is constant repentance of what I want and giving other people what they need. That's what everyday gospel community is, living connected in a way where I lay down my rights and my desires and I care for each other. And then in our self-giving towards each other, we're cared for and the world around us experiences the abundance of the kingdom coming to life. Everyday gospel community is death to self, alive in Christ. And together we own the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships. That might be as simple as, we'll talk a lot about this the rest of the day. It's going to get real functional here real quick. But the everyday, the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships is me saying, okay, God has given me people of peace in my neighborhood. God has given me people of peace in my workplace. God has given me people of peace in my shooting club. God has given me people of peace in, uh, you know, my Baccarat club or whatever. I don't even know what people do. Whatever people do, that's, God has placed you there and all he's telling you is pay attention to what the Spirit's doing in those places and be his people there. That's what it means to own the mission is to expect God to work and participate in it as it's coming to life. So now it's time for a little bit of conversation around your tables. And uh, now I know some of you are already in a micro church and it'd be really good for you guys to sit at a table together and to talk. Now, some of you are kind of in formation and trying to figure out if and how you're going to do a micro church or you're transitioning to a new micro church. You can sit with people from your micro church or the people God has brought into your life to do it together. And you can have a conversation. Here's the questions I want you to ask. The one question I want you to ask. Let's do two. Do it fast, and if you over-talk, somebody just, like, raise their hand when somebody's talking too long, and then they'll stop, okay? There's somebody at every table, I'm sure, who's willing to do that. <laughs> um, just, just, you know, if you don't talk, talk. If you do talk, don't talk. It's real simple, okay? Uh, so while you're sharing, two things. One, what... What, has, what do you have to repent of from the way that you saw church before if you want to participate in what God's doing? What do you have to repent of? And what is, what's the thing that you sense from the Lord as you were listening today? As, as you've been listening, what's the thing that God is starting to bring up in you? Um, take, we'll take, let's say, 10 minutes. And at 10 minutes, I'm going to release you to grab some coffee and a little bio break for five minutes. And then we'll come back and we're going to get real functional on what's next and how we do microchurch, okay? So sit with your folks. Yeah. So the second question is, what do you sense the Lord speaking to you as you're listening to, to this, this talk this morning? What's, what is God bringing up in you? All right. So we're going to talk about uh, types and phases of microchurch. And uh, let me say this. There are... 
so I, before I was at Redemption Hill, before we planted Redemption Hill, I was at a mega church and I was a part of our community life team, which we oversaw 125 small groups across four campuses with, I think like it was like 2,500 people in small groups. And the goal was to make them all as similar as possible so that people could move between them if they moved towns or find a place that looked the same. And they did a sermon-based Bible study and they did the same thing every week and they got a little you know, thing in, in their email that they were supposed to do. And there was this, this decision that uniformity was the most important thing. And yeah, there's, there's two different ones. You, you should have two handouts. Um, <clears throat> now, what we learned in the Industrial Revolution is that if you do something over and over and over again the same way, it gets easier and easier to do. And if you make it simple enough, it can be reproducible across time and space. And we have worked hard throughout the 20th century to create ways to communicate things in the same way through people so that it's personalized, but it's the same thing over and over and over again. And that's what, if we believe that the church is all about information and all we're doing is getting information out, then that's a good way to get information out is to make sure that people say it the same way and do it the same way everywhere we go. But what we have been talking about is that the, we are changing the goalposts from the gospel being information to the gospel being the kingdom of God breaking into this world and participating in it. And so the work that we're doing is inviting people to be transformed in the way of Jesus in their life. And so it's not about information and it's not about fidelity to information. It's about each of us being transformed in the way of Jesus. So when you're thinking about a microchurch, there is no one way of doing it. Uh, there's lots of different ways of doing it. And I think there's two ways that microchurches tend to, tend to form. And, and here's the way that we, we kind of help people think about it. The first is there's going to be some of you in this room who feel a call and a sense of duty to step out and live as spiritual parents leading a microchurch as missionaries. You sense this call and this, this, this thing God is inviting you into, and you're going to walk through the missionary pathway, and you are going to gather a team, you're going to pray and fast, you're going to live as missionaries, you're going to teach the way of Jesus, you're going to see a microchurch emerge from that. And it's going to be about you living on mission. And the people who are going to join you are going to be the people that God has called you to. It's going to be people of peace in your life. Um, for us, it's our neighborhood. Our neighborhood geographically is where we have planted our lives. This half, I live within like a half mile radius of both of my works and my kids' school and our church. That's our whole life is in this half mile radius. This is where we do ministry. And primarily it's among the families that we're connected with through business and through school. That's our people of peace. We're focused on that, and we invite people. When we start Redemption Hill, we're inviting people into that. We started as a group, a, a missional community, who was praying for the neighborhood God had planted us in. We prayed for space. We prayed for people to partner with us. We've been praying that our friends would move into the neighborhood. We send them listings for houses in our neighborhood anytime they come up. Kavika, I'm looking at you. Um, we're, we're working on getting missionary friends to join us in this work because we are passionate about the thing God's called us to. And some of you feel that clarity around, hey, I feel called to the community that gathers around racing cars at Meridian Speedway on Saturdays. 
Some of you are going, I have this clear calling around my kids' travel soccer or baseball team. Uh, we have some friends in Kansas City who um, they have a church. So there's this youth rodeo circuit that like rolls around throughout the Midwest and they all go to these same rodeos and they live in trailers and they, you know, ride things. I'm not sure how it works, but they ride things. And when they're not riding things, they're hanging out at fairgrounds. And so there's these families who go, we're, we're called to follow Jesus. And the thing that he's called us into is this rodeo thing. And so they are living as missionaries in the rodeo, the youth rodeo circuit of the Midwest. And they've seen dozens of kids come to Jesus because they're living as missionaries in that space. Um, in our, our community in Tampa, Tampa Underground, there's, there's been 200 microchurches that have started, some of them with clear justice initiatives. There's one that's focused around a, a team of missionaries who go and live the gospel among sex workers throughout the Tampa Bay area. They care for them. They love them. They invite them into their homes. They live alongside them. Um, I know that Sojourn started a, a homeless church so that people within their community and the homeless community started a micro church down at the day center, St. Stephen's, is that what's called? Whatever, whatever that, yeah, whatever that day center is down. Yeah, Christus, Corpus Christi, that's it, Corpus Christi Day Center. And they, they didn't start a church for homeless people, they, they started a micro church with homeless people and lived on mission together. Um, so so there's, there's clear missions that people live into. Now there's also some micro churches that God brings you together because of your relationship. And you don't have a clear sense of calling, but you know you're supposed to be with somebody else. God brought them into your life to teach them how to follow Jesus. God brought them into your life to teach them, to teach you how to live on mission. And so you're going to be with them as an apprentice. This is a lot like Paul and Timothy's relationship where Paul had this clear mission to Asia Minor and he would bring people along with him and show them how to lead and how to live as missionaries and how to start networks of house churches throughout Asia Minor. And he would bring people along, show them, leave them in a place, and then they would teach somebody else and they would leave and that was the way that they taught. And so those are kind of the two ways we think about microchurch forming. It's either a clear sense of calling to a people to reach or a clear sense of calling to a person to be on a team with. And you kind of need to figure out what, what are you going to do? Now, uh, we kind of talk about two different types of, um, of microchurch and I, I hate the language that this uses, but I think it's a, it's a good picture. So just bear with me. Um, there's this guy named Ralph Winter who wanted to kind of look at different ways that churches do these three things and he calls the modalic space it's the place where you feel at home and you feel safe and so if you look at it it's big community big worship little mission and all three are still in place but it's built around belonging safety and healing this is uh this is the cozy comfortable micro church or you know your community group that you have loved and been with for 10 years and when you go you feel like it's it's like cheers where you, when you go there you're family you're known everybody knows your name and then you have the sodalic space which is the place where mission is the highest the the most important and there's adventure risk and apostolic impulse and micro churches need a space that is primarily modalic that is a place where people can belong and be known and grow and heal. 
And they also need spaces where they can live in this sodalic space around uh, adventure, risk, apostolic. But when we talk apostolic, we're not talking about like an apostle in an authority sense. Apostolic means sent one. It means missionary. And so that apostolic impulse is a missionary impulse to go. Apostle means the sent one, the missionary. We should probably just get rid of apostolic and just call them missionary, but that's, that's what we're talking about. And so there's kind of two different types of microchurches, and there's some interplay. Yeah. Um, the overlap is supposed to represent, uh, like, it is church because there is overlap. Like, microchurch is the ecclesial minimum of up and and out. If you don't have all three of them, there is no, it's not church, it's something else. So when the church gathers, it has all three of those in some sort of a rhythm. And that's why we, we want to make sure that overlap is there because it means that all three are present. If one of them is not present, then they, they don't overlap. Now, I didn't make these. They like, people like Venn diagrams. You can do them different ways. Sorry, Norm. <laughs> um, okay, so there's two different types of microchurches, and then we'll talk about kind of the ways that, people, that some are hybrid, and we'll walk through that. So there's specific mission microchurches, and those are ones that focus on one mission and engage that mission together primarily. So everyone engages the same missional space or the same people group. Um, the microchurch is organized around a specific missional space. So uh, that might be, the, like I, I lead a small team that's trying to reach middle schoolers in our area. And there's a group of adults that together lead micro, or lead what we call wildlife, which is Young Life's middle school ministry. And we have a particular mission. It's junior hires in the capital area of the city. And we are focused on getting the gospel in the hands of those kids. And we're building a team of missionaries to work alongside of us. So that's a specific mission. Okay. Now, uh, the access to the community is to join the mission. So if you want to be a part of the microchurch, if you want to be a part of the group that leads wildlife, then you have to help lead wildlife. You can't just come hang out. You have to, be, you have to participate. It's weird if adults are just hanging out. You've got to be a part. Okay? Um, and then there's kind of the second model we call the incubator microchurch model. This is the microchurch is a model that equips multiple mission field engagement. And probably most of your microchurches look like this, where you have different missions that God has called you to, different people of peace and different mission fields he's called you to. Um, I'm thinking about like my, our microchurch, our family microchurch. Um, there's people who live in Eagle. There's people who live on the bench. There's people who live on the West Bench. And we're partnering together for each other's micro, for each other's mission. But we also have the places where we engage particularly around those missions. Um, but everyone has a different missional space that they're engaging. The microchurch is organized around equipping the community into any mission. So when we're together, we're, we're focused on helping you do what you're called to outside. Instead of doing it all together, you're doing your mission. You're inviting people into it. But when we get together, that's a modalic place where you're being cared for. You're being known. You're being equipped and then the mission is happening outside of the group rather than inside of the group, okay? Two different models. Here is one of the ways that that could look, okay? Um, so PMC is potential missionary. Uh, it's on that sheet. It's basically a potential missionary, okay? PMC. And they enter into this modalic worshiping community, so a microchurch that's an incubator, and then 
they have these sodalic places where they build a team of coworkers. They have a specific mission. They're working with their neighbors. They have a justice initiative that they're working in. And the people in their worshiping community partner with them in some of those things. And they're also, um, like Malia and I, our microchurch has some people who are in our neighborhood. And then there's some people who are in our neighborhood who are followers of Jesus who don't belong to our microchurch. And we're inviting them to pray with us and help us reach our school because we're partnering together. I, Dusty and I like to call them kingdom, missionary, kingdom neighborhood associations. So they're followers of Jesus in a neighborhood that even though we go to different churches, we have the same mission, which is the people he's called us to. And so we invited some of those friends out this last week to pray at our elementary school before school started. And a few people showed up from our community, and we're hoping to continue to engage them in those pieces. So does that make sense? There's, there's interplay between people outside and inside the microchurch. And it, you don't need to have clear boundaries of who's in and who's out. All right? People who belong to the mission, they can participate without signing on the dotted line of covenant community. And that's primarily one of the things God wants to do is he wants to engage people in mission before they even understand who God is. Like the disciples, you look in Mark 2 and 3, Jesus sends them out before they know that he's the king and understand that he's Lord and know what he's doing. They don't get what, what he's up to, and Jesus sends them out. There's lots of people who are going to start and be a part of the mission you've been called to before they believe, and that's okay. They don't have to sign a statement of faith before they participate in God's work. It really is okay. Now, if somebody's going to lead a microchurch, we'd like them to be formed and shaped in the way of Jesus on some level, and we want to equip them to train others. But when people just belong, they can belong before they believe. And then what happens is you see um, the modalic community multiplies, and it plants both kinds of microchurches. Maybe within your microchurch, somebody has a real passion around a particular people group, they are doing mission, and they've raised up a group of people to team with them, and they're going to go launch another microchurch because they've built a team, and they're ready to go focus on that mission. That's good. Now, some other people are going to say, you know what? I'm really, I love this hybrid model, and I feel like a trainer and an equipper, and so I'm going to go find more people to train in the mission God's called them to and create that modalic space, that worshiping community where those things happen, where people live as, as extended spiritual community on mission. Okay? Now, I want to give a second to answer any questions, but does that help you guys? Does that help? Any, any questions about kind of the way that the model works and the two different types? We're, there's some that are in formation right now. Uh, we're working on this. Yeah, and I think that uh, we, we want to give people permission to experiment. You know, like uh, my buddy, Jay Miller, we, 
we, we do a lot of stuff together, but we both are passionate about mountain biking. And he's just said, you know what, I'm going to, he created a, a team on Strava and it's called the Beef Boys Bike Club because it's guys like him and I who are out there mountain biking. And uh, he invites people into it. He does rides, and those become the context. You know, they, they mountain bike, and then they drink beer afterwards, and then while they're sitting around at Springhouse, they talk about Jesus. And it's like those sorts of things are the ways we want to do. But that can be a person from a microchurch doing those things. It doesn't have to be a fully formed thing. We can try things out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes, Wonder School emerged out of a passion and calling that Jesse had to live as a missionary to families in our neighborhood. And now she's built a team of, of people around her, a, a community that is partnering with Wonder School. And now there's 50 families that they're reaching out to as their people of peace. That's clearly a microchurch model example. And then Jesse is, has an intentional disciple-making environment with her teachers where she's teaching them how to follow Jesus. So that's a perfect example. Yes. Mm-hmm. They experienced the kingdom by having their kids be a part of Wonder School, and they said, I've got to get more of this. Those are people of peace from our life. Those are some of the people we've been praying for for five years. Our kids have gone to school together, and they brought them to Wonder School, and now they're, they're in a disciple-making relationship with Jesse before they even decided to follow Jesus. Like, there's, those are kind of things that happen. Yeah, the Good News Club is, is a perfect example of a microchurch. Yeah, I go pick up, I, last year I was picking up my kids from Becca on Thursdays because not only does she watch my kids all day for free, but then she puts on an after-school club for 70 kids while she's watching my four kids, which is absurd, Becca. You make us all look bad. Um, but there's, you show up and there's 70 kids and she's just telling them about God's love and they're learning a Bible verse and they eat a snack and it has birthed lots of fruit in your neighborhood and it's going to, it's going to have generational impact because you, you commit to it. Absolutely. Any other questions or like, like things that this is striking you as you go through it? Yes, Marty. Uh, the answer is there will always be a poll. All three of these want to take over. There, there are people who are so drawn to worship that they will cloister themselves up in a hermitage and just do prayer and only do that because they think that that's the purest way to follow God. 
there are people who are going to say, you know what, yeah, I like Jesus, but I really love the community that gathers around Jesus, and so that's going to be the thing that I'm going to value more than anything else. And it doesn't matter what we preach, and it doesn't matter what we teach, and all of a sudden, we haven't had a Bible study in months, but we like having wine together on Thursdays, and then all of a sudden, there's no gospel, there's no mission. And then mission, there are, there are lots of people who are going to say, I love doing good work and seeing the kingdom come in the world, and they'll do it without the king. They'll, see, they'll try to create the kingdom without the king, and that's the YMCA. Lots of organizations are that way. Boys and Girls Club started as a Christian mission and has lost its way. I don't think there's any way to do that other than to restart from mission over and over and over again. You don't want to have such a large organization that the organization wags the mission. The mission has to be the thing. It has to be the focus. Yeah. That's actually our, yeah, that's our next section is going to be the life cycle of the microchurch. So I want to give you a few minutes. We're going to take, say, seven minutes. I want you to talk as a microchurch or as a group of friends, and I want you to talk about who are the people. These are, these are uh, the ones that Jesus identified as his circles of influence. So he had the crowds, the thousands and thousands that would gather around him. He had the there was 120 and there were 72. Both had particular roles as the committed followers of Jesus that weren't a part of the 12. You've got the 12, which were the ones that were in a covenant relationship with Jesus to learn his way and to take his yoke and teach it. You have the three who are his key leaders that he poured more in time and space into than anyone. And then he had the father who got his best time and he was the one who drove everything he did. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about two things. Number one is, what type of microchurch are you or do you want to create between those two kind of models? And who are the people of peace that God has brought into these different circles around you? Okay. So what type of microchurch is God calling you to and who are the people he's brought into your life? You got seven minutes. Go for it. All right, I just got a great question that I think is really important, and this is probably deserves more time than this, but what is a person of peace, okay? These are people who listen to you, who love you, and who serve you. Listen, love, serve. It's people who are drawn to you, people who will step in and, like, partner with you on something, and people who will listen to what you have to say. You have influence in their life. If it's not one of those three things, they can still be acquaintances. They can still be people that God has brought into your life. But unless they'll show up and listen, they're not a part of that people of peace, okay? Listen, love, serve. Go for it. Um, so in front of you, you've got two things. 
one of them is a, an example of a hybrid model. And I, I just want to walk through that real quick with you while we're here. Uh, nope, that's the wrong thing. Okay. We're going to... Okay, so in front of you... It's the one that says Mobile or Mo Mobile. I'm not actually sure if it's Mobile, Alabama or if it's Mobile, but it's, it's Mobile. It's Mobile Agile. Um, so, so, you've got, <laughs> so you've got, you've got this, uh, it's a hybrid house church model, and I just wanted to walk through it with you. Um, I'm realizing that the, the picture that you were sent is horrible, um, and it's, it was badly formatted by the printer, and so what I'm going to do, it was the printer, I'm sure. Who said that? <laughs> I thought it was Jesse, and then I realized, no, that's Christina's voice. Uh, okay. Oh, let's see. Yeah, I don't like the discipleship that's happening there if you're becoming like Jesse. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Can you guys see that? Okay. Okay. I, yeah, this is even worse. Okay, there we go. So this looks just like what's on your sheet, as you can tell. Um, you, have, you have a link to this at the, at the website, redemptionboise.org. So I like the way that they, they focus on this because they see an interplay between the modalic, which is the center, the family time with believers and non-believers. And that's these, like you should think of that family time as not internal time, but as open family time. And this is something that all of us have to learn is that in the kingdom of God, there's an open hospitality to all who want to move towards God. And that means even when your house is full and even when it's like there's not enough chairs in your living room and even when there's people who are like not quite at the same spot as everybody else, your modalic space should have these soft open borders where people can jump in and participate believers and non-believers. And uh, we're going to talk about kind of dis discovery Bible studies as a, as a method for that. But we think that people can learn the way of Jesus before they believe, and it's an important thing that they do, okay? And then you have these outreaches that are intentional and invitational. That might be a mountain bike club. That might be um, like our, our micro church has been trying to together go to each other's soccer and football games because it's there where we have our micro church and our people of peace in the same place and there's mission that's happening. We like that. Um, it might be, um, so we tell people put on, put on a barbecue, invite your work friends and your micro church friends and it's just a barbecue at your house. It, there, outreach will happen because there's these overlapping groups of people of peace and missionaries. You don't have to plan a come-to-Jesus talk at your barbecue. 
You can just do hospitality, have a party, and let kingdom people and non-kingdom people hang out, and you'll be amazed at what God does, okay? So they're intentional, and they're invitational. And uh, you'll see that there's a centralized family meeting time. We use Discovery Bible Study. This is, for those of you who are part of our, we use a, a, a discipleship process we call huddles that use the learning circle. Discovery Bible Studies is an open way of using the learning circle for anybody who wants to join into a Bible study, okay? And you have access to that, and I'll, I'll touch on it here in a minute. But Discovery Bible Study is just this foundational method both for discipleship and leadership development that's an obedience-based discipleship process. So it's not about learning stuff. It's about becoming. You're learning and listening to God and doing what he says, and that's how you grow. Um, keep it small. And so when you have a large group, let's say you've got 15 adults and 15 kids in your microchurch, in the middle of that craziness, break off into groups of four or five to have a smaller discussion when you're together because it's too much. If you have 16 people in a room, three people will talk and the rest won't, okay? If you have four groups of four, everybody will talk and everybody will be heard and you'll create relationship faster than all staying together. So don't be afraid to break up into smaller groups when you are together. Um, pray for outreach. Every time you're together, keep mission at the front by praying for people of peace and praying for people you care about and praying for needs because that's what keeps it on your mind. And then, so with this group there, they have some intentional outreach. Um, so soccer moms, grocery stores, library classes, sports teams, bars, coffee shops, club, uh, parks, hobbies, going to the market, international students, homeless ministry, whatever that intentional thing is, they do that outside of the group. And they invite people from their group to participate in it. And then they invite people from where they're reaching out to join in the modalic space, that family time together. So there's, there's both directions. You're bringing people to join your team on mission, and you're bringing people from the mission to join your family. It's a, it's a two-directional process. Um, they have a model where more mature believers invite younger disciples to join them in their outreach. So when you're looking around and going, hey, I feel like, you know, Johnny needs to learn the way of Jesus, start by asking him if he'll join you on mission, and that's how you'll know if he's ready to join you in discipleship. Because if he won't join you on mission, he can't join you in discipleship. That's why Jesus sent out the 72. He was seeing what people did. It was a test of their obedience. It was a test of their trust. And it was a test of how they do when they're out there. And then he brought them back and taught them how to do it. And then uh, I think this is an important one. Hold tension between process and urgency. So it's going to take time to see fruit from your mission. It's going to take time to see community gel. And you also need to feel urgency about being together and doing the things God's called you to. What happens is groups feel a lot of urgency to do the things they think that they're supposed to do, and it puts a lot of pressure on them. And some groups don't feel any urgency at all to even be together. <laughs> and what you need is a sense of urgency to be together and to focus on the thing God's called you to, and a sense of process and patience around fruitfulness. If you focus on urgency around the day-to-day, -day, you know, every sports movie ever, just do your job, do the little things right, and then the fruit of, of seeing, seeing things emerge and go well is always the fruit of the urgency of the day-to-day 
we, we get together, we worship and obey God, we live in connected community, and we intentionally step into outreach, and then we leave the results up to God. And what we see is fruit comes from that over time. So a, a combination of urgency and process is important. Um, and you can read the rest of this kind of as a model. I think it's important. I, w- I don't, I don't want to get, um, get stuck on that. But th- this is just a way for you to kind of think about your, um, your microchurch. Okay, real quick, the Discovery Bible Study. You can look this up um, on the, the website. But here it goes, okay? So it starts with connect. These are just a set of questions. What are you thankful for? What's a challenge you're facing? This is the same way we start all of our huddles. We look for celebrations, and we look for places where we're struggling. Um, How did you do with last week's I will statement? So every single week, you're going to respond to what you learn by committing to do something different. It's that work of repentance by setting aside the way that we were living before and saying, "I, I will do what God has called me to. And then did you share what we talked about? So there's really only three pieces. God speaks, we listen, we do, and then we tell, okay? It's just a real simple process. So that's the connect part. The next part is discover. You read a passage, particularly from the New Testament, because that's where we're going to see the way of Jesus come to life in its fullness. Have someone put it into their own words. So just read the passage and then have somebody read it back to you. Ask what stands out to you, i.e., what is God saying? What is God bringing up? We're not asking them, what do you find interesting about the Greek in this passage? We're not, like, I was talking with a a pastor buddy this week, and he basically said that his entire life he'd been learning to study the Bible in a way that didn't require him to do anything with it. Like, all he was doing was finding interesting things in it and looking at, like, all of the intricacies of it and not asking, what's it saying and what should I do because of it? That's what discipleship is, is asking, what is God saying and how am I going to obey? So, what stands out to you, i.e., what is God saying? What does this text say about who God is? And what does this text say about people and what God wants from them? And then you're going to just work through, okay, how are you going to live this out? Create an I will statement that you write down in your journal. And then who are you going to tell about it this week? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's, you know, your Bible study at work. Whatever that thing is, find a way to, you're going to internalize it because you're doing it. So that's Discovery Bible Study. Um, and I'm going to have, I'm going to have Malia come share for a few minutes, and then I'm going to walk through the phases of the microchurch. So, uh, Malia's my wife. She's beautiful. She's incredible. And we've been on this journey of learning to live as missionaries for the last 15 years, 18 years. Tomorrow, we've been on this journey together. Um, yeah, it was a horribly planned weekend for <laughs> busy busy weekend um but malia come on up and uh she's she's gonna share with you kind of the way god has been shaping her as a missionary and then we'll talk about the phases of the microchurch got all these screens up here hi so yeah my name is malia i'm married to this guy robert 18 years tomorrow so it's like an adult right a relationship is an adult um, so he, Robert asked me a few weeks ago just to share a little bit about um, what I've learned, what we've learned as a family on how to live on mission, on hospitality. Um, and so, let's see, where do I want to start? Ugh, we moved back here. Oh my gosh, you guys, you can tell I don't do this a lot. Um, 
we moved back to Boise like five or six years ago, I think, um, with a vision to plant a church. And we felt very specifically that it was Boise, this place. This is where we wanted to spend the rest of our lives. And um, not just spend our lives, but invest our lives into a neighborhood. We didn't know where that was when we first moved in. We moved in with some friends in their basement. Um, but into a neighborhood where we would invest our lives. Um, so I have four little kids, eight, six, four, and two in one more week. Um, and I wear a ton of hats. So we're church planters. I help lead worship. I'm a nurse practitioner, mom, friend, sister. You know, a lot of the things I think, especially uh, women, wear a lot of hats like that. Um, and something that the Lord has really been trying to teach me in this season right now is how to simplify and integrate my life. Um, so I'm going to kind of rewind back to my family of origin. So. Um, I, I grew up with very young parents. My parents were very young and we moved a lot. Um, and we never hosted. We never settled anywhere long enough to make, to build community or to have people over. The only time I can actually ever remember having people over was like when grandma came for Christmas or we went to grandma's or maybe some cousins that would stay with us for a little bit. Um, but this was like hospitality and having people over into my home was never modeled for me. Um, and I come from this long line of like obsessive cleaners. I don't know if any of the rest of you come from uh, people like that. But I, so my, there's stories about like how my great grandma used to just scrub their walls with soap and water and buckets like once a week. Um, and then I think it gets a little less, <laughs> a little less crazy. Um, each generation. My grandma, though, she's 85, and she still will, she lives on her, my grandpa passed away. She still irons her pillowcases, her sheets, all of her clothes after she washes them. And then my mom, you know, my mom is, you can talk to Robert, like, if you take a drink from a cup and set it down, it's gone. Like, you don't know where it went, it's gone. It's clean. Um, so that's what I've learned about, about how, like, that's how I learned what a house should be like. Um, I, you know, if you leave your house, you're very put together, you have on an outfit, your hair is done, your makeup's done just right, you're like present to your home, you present yourself to the people outside of your home. Um, and so then I married Robert. <laughs> um, and uh, we got married young. I was 22, he was 21. And he wanted to have people over every single day, like every single day. And I love people and I love having fun and I wanted to keep up with them. Um, I couldn't, and so we have to learn boundaries, but apart from that, I had to learn what hospitality meant, and I remember having, like, full-on, like, panic attacks, like, these expectations that I had for myself and for my home were very unrealistic, um, and so I think even now, I still feel, sometimes when I'm hosting something, this like, where's this coming from, the significant anxiety about my house being just right or presenting it just right or, you know, making sure that people feel perfectly at home in my home. Um, and so, and, you know, I want to stop and say, like, taking pride in your home and in yourself and your appearance is not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. But for me, it was, it was bondage. I was not living in a place of freedom. 
it was keeping me from living in the freedom I feel like God was calling me into. And he was calling me into something different, a kind of uh, like radical, what we've, I've learned to call scruffy hospitality. So not really caring about, well, we'll talk about what that kind of looks like. But there's this couple that we met. So we moved to Boston. We li- we're living here. We are married five years. And then we moved to Boston in 2010. And um, that's where I met this couple, uh, Corey and Brett Ogburn. Um, they lived in a little town outside of Boston called Reading. And um, I think this is the first time I really started, uh, I was welcomed into this kind of radical hospitality. Um, we didn't know anybody. The first time we met the Ogburns, we went to church. It was my birthday, but we didn't tell anyone because we were like, if we tell people, then maybe they won't invite us over. Uh, so Corey and Brett invited us over, and I was like, Robert, do not say it's my birthday. So we went and we had um, lunch there at their home, just outside picnic table, and um, I think Robert told Corey it was my birthday, and she just ran inside, had some brownie mix, threw it together. Um, got like a, I think she, she had like a hat and some candles. It was just the four of us. And um, she had a broken oven, but she still was like, well, let's just try to bake these brownies. It's your birthday, for goodness sake. So she puts this, these brownies in the oven, brings them out. They present it singing happy birthday. I just met them like an hour ago. <laughs> um, and they put the candles in. They sing, I blow them out. And then we could cut them, and it was like this crust on top of brownie batter. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, and we all ate a little, like, I felt like, oh, thank you. <laughs> we all had to eat a little bit. Um, I, but I felt so cared for and so welcomed and so safe in that place. Um, Corey and Brett believed, they would say that they believed that God put them in Reading. They came from other states, I think like Arizona, or, um, but they felt called to live in Reading. They had, there were two, they had two kids, they had two teenagers. Um, we didn't have kids yet. They had two teenagers. They invited two other families to move into the neighborhood with them. And um, they felt like God had them for a purpose. They moved there. Um, yeah, they moved there just believing that God had them there for their neighborhood, for their people. Um, and let's see, I wanted to write, read a couple things that I wrote about him their lives, some of the things that I noticed was their, li- their lives were so incredibly full, but they never seemed hurried. Um, and their kids were part of their life, like their kids' activities, their kids' things. They just, they were included in everything they did. We always, like Jonah, Christine, Brett, and Corey. Um, and I, I saw, Robert and I both saw neighbors, friends, teens, come to know Jesus for the first time um, because they met Corey and Brett. So we moved into the neighborhood, and we started to do life alongside them. Um, And the way they did hospitality was so different than anything I had ever seen before. So their house was beautiful and cared for, but it wasn't always picked up. Uh, It felt so safe. It was a place where there were always kids over. There were always high school students over. They also would have college students and young adults living in their basement. There was a new one. I feel like every time we'd show up, there was a new kid living in their basement. Um, the, you know, the laundry was always out. Being in, uh, let's see, there were always games. And 
they always hosted exchange students. She would volunteer with local, the local garden group and like build gardens. Um, Corey deeply loved Jesus. So she, she offered to mentor me. I was like, yes, of course, I want to live like you. And I jumped at the opportunity. But I remember, so where I came from was like, when you're discipled, you sit down in, in a circle and you open your Bible and you pray together and then you read the Bible and then you do the things, or you say you're going to do the things that you're learning about. Um, but Corey's way of discipling was so different. I remember feeling frustrated. She would show up, pick me up, and then we'd go on walks. She would, uh, um, she would just like have me over for dinner, and then we would make dinner together. Um, it, but it wasn't ready. It wasn't this intentional content-filled time. Um, we would do laundry, cook. It just didn't seem spiritual to me at the time. And um, looking back now, I realize I learned so much more about Jesus and kingdom living from living life on life with Corey than I ever had before, or maybe even since, from you know, from a church building or any Bible study. So we moved back to Boise. This is something that's just so near and dear to my heart was that those couple years that we lived in Reading. And when we moved back here, that was something that I wanted to emulate. Um, and so as we, you know, something that Dusty kept referring to. So we moved back and then he talked a lot about prayer. And I feel like Wherever we've lived and whatever we've done, if it doesn't start with prayer, nothing happens. And so I think listening to the Father is so important. So we started off by praying. We moved here, and we would just pray. We'd get friends together and pray. Um, and then I remembered how Corey knew the names of all of her neighbors, and she would know what was going on in their life. She, didn't, like, she knew them intimately. She would ask questions, know them, care about them, and really love them. And so that was not something, I think Robert and I always had like a mission and people we were going towards, but not in our home. And so um, that was something I really wanted to integrate when we moved here. So we started being intentional with our neighbors, knowing their names. We even had this thing in our, one of our drawers where we write down the names of our neighbors, their names, their kids' names, um, who they are. Um, and I'm gonna tell you some of the other things that this sort of looks, so we prayed together. Some of the books that I read when we first came back that talk a lot about this, that if you guys wanna read more about missional living and neighboring, the art of neighboring, and I don't know the author. And the other one is Hospitality Comes with a House Key. Um, we feel really called, like Robert said, to this neighborhood here and this elementary school. And um, I still struggle with the expectations of, the hospi of, of everything being perfect, but I feel like I'm learning. We're learning. We try and then we fail, but I'm learning to live unhurried and in freedom and to let people come over if I'm in my pajamas, you know, like just come on in, <laughs> you know. That's what, that's what Corey would do. And um, some of the things, other things that we are trying and trying to do now by living on living on mission is um, seeing your neighbors as uh, like looking for the needs. I think Dusty said, Dusty said this too about listening to where the spirit is already working. So as you're praying for your neighbors, God's going to put people on your heart. He just will. And 
you'll, then you'll talk to them and you're going to pay extra close attention because you're already praying for them. And the Spirit's going to tell you some of the things that those people need. They might be having new babies. They might be having surgery. Um, how are you going to jump in and do life and care for the people around you? Um, another thing that we're doing is we're not doing mission alone, obviously. Uh, we have all of you guys, but also we, as Robert said, we've been, we pray for our, our friends to move into our neighborhoods, and we do send listings. Like, literally, we send listings to friends. And one of the, those friends did move um, just, a, a, like, a few streets over. And, and um, we get together, and we pray, do prayer walks. We go to each other's sports, t- sports games. We do park days together. Um, and one other thing that I've really been learning as a mom and that I watched Corey and Brett do is to go at the pace of your kids. I'm going to say that again. Go at the pace of your kids. Look at what your kids are doing. Don't try to, like, do your own thing and then just pull them along. They are part of your mission. They are part of your family on mission. Go at the pace of your babies, your kids. If they want to go to the park, go to the park, but be intentional when you're at the park. Look for the other moms. Look if they're struggling too. Um, let your kids be part of the mission. And for us, that does look like investing in sports team families sometimes, getting to know other parents at birthday parties. So we think of birthday parties as like, well, mission time. You know, like, let's go meet some people. Let's go see what they need. Block parties, barbecues. Um, and then, you know, I, I also work, and I know a lot of us work, <laughs> and I, I've started to sort of think of the way that, that works. I've heard someone else talk about this, like work is the new neighborhood. For a lot of people, they're not, they don't know their neighbors. They're not going to know their neighbors, especially if they're not believers. They're not going to be looking out. They're just looking in, but at work... They're willing to have conversations. Those are your neighbors, the people you sit with at work, your coworkers. Treat them as you would treat their, your neighbors, like how we're talking about here. Um, you know. So I think that's all I have. I just wanted to share some of the things I've been learning about hospitality. And if anyone wants to talk about it or talk about how you're struggling with it or ways that I've kind of worked through it, I would love to talk with you. Um, Robert, do you have a list of those questions? Did you want me to read them? I came up with some questions for you. Do you know who, who your neighbors are? So who are your neighbors? Do you know their names? Do you know if they have kids? Do you know what they do? Where is God already at work around you in the places you go? And this has been said a few other times. Like, what do you like to do? Do you run? Do you bowl? <laughs> Does anyone bowl? Um, do you do art? Do, are you in a community choir or orchestra or band? Um, where is God already at work? Where is he already working? And how can you join them there? Um, how can you live intentionally with your neighbors? And what would it look like if you really went at the pace of your children, if you have children, if you went at the pace of your kids, especially if you have little kids? I know it's different for teenagers. They're kind of, you're more free. We talked about a lot today, but this is really about inspiration. The real work that's going to happen is going to be with your microchurch, with your team of missionaries. Here's the secret to kingdom mission. Listen to God, get some friends together, try some things, and see what God does. That's all it is. Listen to God, 
get some friends, pray, do what God tells you to do, and see what happens. It's really, really simple. Um, I'm, I'm having, we're passing out two things. Um, one is about the, the life cycle of a, uh, of a microchurch. And uh, this is just a little, little something to help you think through where you're at so that you know what you need. And then uh, there's, a, there's a handout there that's, uh, it's specific invitations for you in your phase. And so let me pull that up real quick. Uh, hopefully you can see it somewhat behind me. So phase one is all about initiative. This is you're gathering people, start with an idea and prayer, refine the vision. You're gonna sh- the more you talk about what God's calling you to, the more clear it's going to get. Because when you're sharing it, God will give you insight into what it's going to look like. So tell your friends, hey, I think God's doing something. You, you can be tentative about it, like, I think he's doing this, and I think it's going to look like this, and here's what I'm excited about. And then invite them to pray with you. So you don't have to have a fully formed idea. You don't have to have a 30-page plan. You just start with, I think God's up to something. I want to see a community emerge, and I think God's calling me to this. And just invite friends into it. We had Zoom calls when we were launching Redemption Hill. We just called up our friends, told them about this inkling, this like whisper of an idea of what we could see happen. And what happened was people said, we will pray with you, and we will see what God does. And that's where God starts to knit your hearts together around prayer. Recruit a team together. And then log those prayer hours. The prayer is where the magic happens. The second phase is practice and experimentation, okay? So you're going to actively experiment with ideas around the thing you're called to, the people you're called to. Uh, You're going to generate feedback loops. So you're going to plan something, you're going to do it, and then you're going to talk about it. And the talking about it is really important because what you want to do is after you have an event or an outreach or something, you get together and you go, what was God doing? Share the stories of the conversations, share the pain points, and then use that to help you plan for what's next. You need that feedback loop. Jesus did that with his disciples. He'd send them out, they'd go, they'd come back, and then they'd sit around and talk about what went wrong and what went right. Sometimes Jesus was like, oh yeah, I actually haven't taught you how to cast out demons that require faith, and so you just don't know yet, and that's okay. And you're going to teach them, and that's going to be a part of like how God formulates what they need. Uh, and then you're going to develop your team. This is crucial. Your team isn't just people who bring, who, who are a part of what you're doing. Your team is the mission. Developing your team into followers of Jesus who have faith, who listen to God and do what he says, who are repenting of sin and growing in righteousness, that's the mission. And so your teammates aren't just people to use to make your mission happen. Your teammates are your mission. You're going to develop them. You're going to teach them what you're learning about Jesus. You're going to get coaching from other people who are going to help you lead your team and develop them. So don't get lost on the mission is the mission and the mission of the people. It's both and. And then log those prayer hours. Real important. Phase three is engagement. This is when you see microchurch emerge because you have all three ecclesial minimums at play. There's mission, there's formation and community, and there's worship. 
All three are happening. So you're going you're gonna to go from, hey, we're trying things out to, hey, this is who we are. You're going to clarify and codify your approach and your strategy. You might have like a document that says, here's our values and here's why we meet and here's what we do. Um, you're going to start clarifying, here's the tools and techniques that we use. You're going to have a calendar that says, hey, once a month, uh, this person in our group hosts a barbecue. And then at that barbecue, we have non-believing friends and believing friends, and we see what God does in that space. And then this month, we do this activity, and this month, we do this activity. You start to kind of create a rhythm and uh, what we call like our vehicles. So your vehicle for disciple-making may be a smaller huddle environment. And your vehicle for outreach might look like, uh, you know, one of the many strategies we've talked about today. Your, out, your, uh, your vehicle for, for worship might change from music to the word, to liturgy, to prayer. You know, it might, it might have different. But you're, but you're clarifying what those things are. You're making disciples. You're growing leaders. And phase three is when you start looking at, okay, multiplication is the natural outcome of the growth of microchurch. Because your house is only big enough for however many people, and the mission of God is constantly growing and changing. And so you're going to start looking around and saying, who should I be having help me lead? Who do I need to teach how to do this? And who's God bringing a new vision to them, and they need help seeing that birthed out in the next microchurch? So you start working the leadership square with them. Um, you start to grow in your inclusion of outsiders, and so the, the edges get softer the longer you're in a group. Now, this is opposite of most community groups. Most community groups, the edges get harder the longer you're in them because it's about protecting the intimacy of the group. But microchurch, the edges get softer and the hospitality gets bigger the longer you're together. And your committed core people are the ones who are throwing open the doors and inviting their friends because their friends are who they want to be a part of this thing. Okay? So the longer you're together, the more unruly it should get, the louder your house should be the less chairs you'll have available, and that's when you know it's time to send some people because you only have so much room in your house. But you don't stop inviting because your house is full. Most of the world, we put 25 people in 2,500 square feet, and we think that it's really tight. Most of the world would laugh at you and say, I could fit 50 people in your living room. You want to see me do it? And, and we get uncomfortable, but I'll tell you what. A full room is a room that's full of life and energy and spirit. Don't miss out on that. Okay? Now, there's times where you have to split, and it's just like kids, and it's, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But don't stop inviting because the room's full. Create more space. Create more opportunities. Um, then phase four is expansion. This is when you start something new. You start to generate a plan for multiplication. You help leader answer their calling. What's God putting in their heart? Uh, you multiply, send, or release people. You know, this, this can be half your group saying, hey, geographically, we live over here and we live over here. We need to create more space by living life in our mission fields together, and we're going to create two new microchurches out of the one. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's one or two people saying, God's called me to live on mission here, and I'm going to build a team, and we're going to start something new over here. Both of those work. Sometimes you get in an argument, and they're just like... John, Mark, and Paul, there's differing vision for where you're going. And God is going to use that to multiply and spread the gospel. You should leave on good terms. You should love and care for each other, and you should bless each other in your mission. But sometimes God's given you something different than the person you're with. 
and you're called to something particular, and you need to go, and that's, that's okay. So those are the four phases, and then you have with you um, a packet that says the four invitations and initiatives for the four phases, and that's something I want you to go through with your microchurch next week. So when you sit down with your microchurch, ask those questions. Where are we at, and what is the invitation in this, in this phase of our microchurch for what is next? All right, and it is... We're done. It's 1255. Um, there's always more to talk about. I'd love to hear from you. What's your, what's your takeaways? What's the, what's the next step for you? And I'm just going to leave it open. So stand up and share whatever God has put on your heart for next steps for you or your microchurch. Guys, this, is, this has been a dream that we've been working on for a couple of years is to see this shared training environment. This is really cool. Thank you for being a part. Uh, we're, tomorrow we're all gathering together for our syndicate family uh, reunion, and we're going to have food, so bring a side dish to share. We're going to provide hot dogs and hamburgers. Uh, we've got worship, short sermon, I promise. Um, we've got, uh, we're going to pray for one another. We're going to pray for our city, and then we're going to baptize our people together. It's just going to be a super sweet day. So 1030 down at Kristen Armstrong, Armstrong Municipal Park, not Memorial. There has, there has been some mistakes there. Uh, she's not dead, <laughs> despite, <laughs> despite evidence to the contrary. <laughs> um, so we're going to meet down there Sunday, 1030. And then we're, we are doing a missionary pathway coaching training. So if you want to be a, like, if you're saying there's a microchurch emerging in you vision-wise and you need some specific coaching, the missionary pathway training is the best way to do that. We'll start that the last week of September. Um, that's going to be, I think we're going to do it maybe Sunday mornings. We're going to try to figure out something that is open and works for lots of people. So that's happening. Um, and then we have a couple of things happening. So follow the syndicate on Facebook and fill out the form on our website. Um, one of the things we're doing and this is true for Redemption Hill and Sojourn in particular, is that we want to invite you to commit to a missionary identity. This is fundamental to who we are as followers of Jesus, is saying that I'm going to take on the calling of Jesus in John 20 to receive his spirit that's breathed on us as new life and live sent as missionaries. And that all it takes to be a part of the syndicate is committing to a lifetime of missionary commitment. And we have a form on our website, and that, that functions as our primary membership for our, for our churches, is if you've made this missionary commitment, you have a voice because you're participating in the calling of God. And that's how we know that you're in or out based on like this clear call of God in our community. So you can fill that out on the syndicate website, um, and that helps us get information to you about what's going on as well. So with all that said, I'm going to pray, and then if you could just help us with chairs and tables and food, getting stuff put away. Jess and Mike Peck will help us put stuff away. And I'll, don't touch the tech because I got to get stuff for tomorrow. So just leave all the tech and we'll, we'll leave that. Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us alone without your spirit. Thank you that it was better for you to leave and that your spirit would come and fill us with vision that it would fill us with power, that it would comfort us in our times of need, that it would be our help meet in every situation, that it would be our counselor and our mentor through the mission you've called us to, that it would be the uniting factor for the body of Christ. And thank you, God, that you included us in your family business. 
that we didn't just get saved and we're going to be, we're not just heirs, but we're heirs who are part of the family business. We have a purpose and a calling. And we pray, God, that we would accept that call with enthusiasm, that we'd live it out with passion, and that we'd get to have the joy that you have when your spirit comes to life in a new human. That is the kingdom of God advances and the gospel takes root and people's lives are transformed that we would see the power of the gospel to transform and have the kind of joy that you have that we would celebrate with the angels in a way that unites us with you Lord God raise up laborers for our city raise up laborers in our neighborhoods who will partner with us who will pray with us who will live out the call in their lives Lord Jesus have your way in Boise and beyond as in heaven. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.